Welcome back to Redline, a millennial tale of passionate love in the combative workplace set in Boston. Hop on board for the next episode of Pia's Tale here on Redline. The next Redline train to Alewife is now arriving. The next day, following the architecture meeting, an email from Lori awaited me when I got to school. The subject line read, See me first thing. There was no message. Just the subject line. I followed orders and went straight to the admin building. You're here early, Anita said with her friendly smile. Good morning. Lori wants to see me. Oh, why, she just walked in the door. It's open, so make yourself at home. Lori was hanging up her chic quilted jacket as I came in. Oh, hello, Pia. Thanks for coming over. Please close the door and have a seat. Her tone was ominous. I sat down at her table, my heart beating fast. Carefully, she lowered herself into her special chair facing me. I'll get straight to the point. I think I've conveyed to you enough times the serious situation you're in. You've been given a written warning about what's not working, but clearly you're not paying attention to it. I haven't seen any improvement in your performance. In fact, your judgment continues to be a problem. You were seen yesterday leaving the visitor parking lot with Mr. Wu before the end of the school day. Um, it was five to four, and Ho okayed it. The bigger issue is leaving with Mr. Wu, our most important parent. Tian asked me for a quick follow-up to the meeting. It was a request from an important donor. <laughs> well, that's not all. It's come to my attention that you've also been going to his house to paint his portrait. This should have been cleared with the school first. We would not have permitted it. And your acting on your own has gravely affected your situation. I doubt there's enough time left in the school year to alter it, which makes it impossible for me to assure you a position for next year. I was struck dumb, with ripples of horror running through me. My throat constricted and blood pounded in my ears, along with Lori's voice, as she continued to denounce me, her bulging eyes glaring at me with ice-cold hostility. Don't you get it, Pia? Don't you get the seriousness of your situation? Don't you? I'm not seeing any improvement. Are you listening to me? Are you? I I try to do my best work. I, I love my work. My colleagues like my work. They like me. Oh, having colleagues who like you has nothing to do with performance. You're in trouble here. How clear can I be about that? You're falling way too short of Haskell standards. Do you hear me? You're not shaping up. You're in trouble. For 15 minutes, she drilled those same words into me as if she couldn't turn off an internal faucet of her wrath. When I finally left, my legs wobbled and I felt shattered, as if bludgeoned. I couldn't even smile goodbye to Anita, who looked concerned. Back in the studio, I couldn't imagine handling my first class. I was quaking all over. I called Rod, but my voice choked. What is it, honey? Did that bitch do something again? I... I think I'm being tortured. Yeah, you are, but you're going to get out of there. You're going to find another job. Don't let it get to you. I have a class, and I I'm too upset to teach. Hang in there, sweetie. Take some deep breaths. Visualize good things, like, like me, like us, our future. Think of your red line, your art. Put that crackpot out of your mind. She's absolutely nothing to us. She's just a crazy lady. You have to block thoughts of her. Okay, thanks. So, I'll, I'll try. 
breathe. Let me hear you. (sighs) I took a few deep breaths. That's the way. Keep doing it. Just hearing your voice is a big help. Thanks. I love you, honey. And it makes me sick that that warped crone is after you. Just remember, she's the loser. And no one likes her. No one's ever liked her. And that's why she hates you. Everyone likes you, and she can't stand it. I felt better after talking to Rod and slowly got into my 7th grade printing class. The students absorbed me, and I even began to have good thoughts again. Like how rewarding it was to be with kids as they experimented with ink and rollers. I loved our classes. When the period was over, I went to my computer and googled workplace bullying and read an article that sounded exactly like my own situation. I called Rod again to share it. Could I just read you a few quotes? Sure, honey, if it makes you feel better. Okay, here's the first. The bully attacks a person's dignity, integrity, and competence relentlessly and inflicts emotional abuse and deep humiliation. Yeah, that says it all. And and one more. The bully's accusations are always false or distorted, and the victim is most often an esteemed member of the organization. On the dot, sweetie. I'm glad you found the article. Send me the link. My upheaval with Lori brought me closer to Rod for a couple of days. He liked his role of being the comforter. I was weak and he was strong. But not for long. When Thursday rolled around and it was time to put on our coats to meet Dixie and others at the art opening in Boston, Rod backed out. Ugh, I don't feel like going. It's been a long day. Boston's too far. But we'll have fun and dinner afterward. Nah, I'm not psyched about her artwork. I looked at her website. But it's beautiful and tells us something about Puerto Rico. Forget the art. We can have a sociable time with friends. Get to know them a little. They're on our party list. Nope. That's not my scene. But Rod, it's my scene, and I thought you wanted to share it. He walked away and opened the fridge to rummage for his dinner. I left alone for the gallery and fumed the whole 45-minute drive to Boston at rush hour. I talked aloud in the car. What's your future going to be like with him? He prefers trashy B-movies to arthouse films and has below-average interest in art. He's fooled you about being a lifelong learner. And it's probably the same about his idea for starting an art gallery someday. Just something to tantalize you. The car radio suddenly played John Mellencamp's Born in a Small Town, and I turned it up. I liked the song all right, but now, listening to the lyrics in light of knowing the true Rod, I felt a repulsion for the singer's droning pride in being a small-town boy. I was born in a small town, and I live in a small town. Probably die in a small town. Ugh. Luckily, the gallery scene took my mind off Rod's shortcomings. I enjoyed meeting Dixie's college roommate, Rosa Garcia, and talking about our art. The dinner afterward with school friends, Dixie, Ho and Jim, and Waff and Walter, was a lot of fun. We drank wine, told stories, and at the end of the evening, Waffa promised to host a shindig to keep the conversation going. Driving home on the now-empty Mass Pike, I felt content. I even looked forward to starting out on a fresh footing with my guy. But it didn't turn out that way, because the way Rod was, I would need to pay for my evening out without him. He was propped on our bed surfing on the computer and didn't look up from his activity when I came in, though he said a pleasant, hello. I hung up my parka and joined him on the bed. The show is great. Oh yeah, sorry I missed it. He didn't plan to say more, tickling my irritation. 
Rose's work was so simple. It reminded me of Jacob Lawrence, his shapes and colors conveying human hardship and pathos. Hmm. I tried one last time. Maybe we could visit Puerto Rico sometime. I'm so curious now. Did I ever tell you about my weird encounter in South Station? In the men's room? No? Well, all of a sudden this Puerto Rican guy tried to crawl under my door while he was masturbating. I got off the bed. That had nothing to do with the guy being Puerto Rican, and how would you even know he was? I didn't. He just looked it. I saw his rascally smile and left. Wait, Pia, I want to show you something. Come see. Stiff with resistance, I went back and looked at his computer. I saw a large windowless storage unit with cement stairs leading to a loft. All kinds of paraphernalia filled the space. Cycles, canoes, tools, and guns on the wall. But the place was also a hangout for the owners and their friends. Flabby, jolly people sat in patio chairs with beer cans in their hands watching a football game on a giant TV. It's called Garage Town. Cool, isn't it? I'm thinking of buying one for a hundred grand. Then we can have our parties there. <laughs> Fat chance. I got up again. You always diss anything I like. For me, hanging out with a bunch of friends and few beers would be just as fun as yawning through a pretentious art show. I recognized that he planned to provoke me until I fought back, and he had succeeded. I opened my computer on the dining table and found John Mellencamp's Born in a Small Town on YouTube. Then I went to the bathroom to wash up for bed, glad that Rod was hearing exactly what I thought through the song's droning. Got nothing against a big town. Still hasty enough to say, look who's in the big town. But my bed's in a small town. Oh, and that's good enough for me. When the song ended, I shut down the computer and went to bed. The room was totally dark, and Rod was under the covers with his back to me. He had curled in such a way that there was only the narrow edge left for me. I climbed in and scrunched around trying to fit, which pissed him off. He threw himself out of bed and stomped out of the room. I lay like petrified wood for a long time and then got up to find him. He was on the couch with a fleece pulled over his back. Why are you here? It's symbolic. I didn't sleep much. My thoughts churned all night. Was I really going through with plans to marry Rod with people coming to our engagement party? Should we see a therapist? Was it even possible to resolve our issues? I was glad to get up at the first sign of daylight and start over. Rod and I kept the peace while we showered and dressed for work. That was our pattern. We argued horribly, but then tried to make peace, show respect for each other. We didn't mention the night before while we made our breakfast and drank coffee. Rod left first while I was in the kitchen packing my lunch. My phone pinged with a text from Lori. You're wanted in the studio immediately. I wrote back. On my way, what happened? But she didn't answer. She preferred keeping me in suspense. In a state of anxiety, I hurried out the door. The brisk spring air reminded me there was good in the world, and I lived on the side of good. But driving the short mile to school, my worry returned. Lori's summons felt like a warrant for my arrest. I parked in the teacher's lot near the tennis courts and half-jogged up the hill with old, crusty snow still present. It was as if police cars with flashing blue lights were waiting for me. A small crowd stood just inside the studio door. Ho, Lori, Bernie the Night Watchman, and dorm parents. All eyes stared out at me as I came up the walk. Lori, in her quilted jacket and coach shoulder bag, looked down at her watch as if I was late, but it was only 7.45. Her arm then flung out at me, and her foundation-coated cheeks shook with wrath. You left the studio unlocked last night. 
What? No, I didn't. I definitely locked up. You left the door open and it's caused a horrible scandal for the school. Will you please tell me what happened? I did lock the door. You need a memory check. Ho tried to speak. As I said, it was... I won't stand for any more of this, Lori shouted. Bernie, who really liked me, said, I think the two of them planned ahead and unlocked that window. Probably Charles climbed in and then let May in through the door, which explains the unlocked door. Exactly. I was here last, Ho confirmed. Ugh! Lori spat all over his words. So Charles and May were in here? I said. All because of your gross negligence. Wait till the globe gets hold of this story. Bernie caught Charles and May doing you-know-what, and you're responsible. I know I locked up. Where are Charles and- They're in their rooms. They'll meet the Judiciary Committee as soon as everyone gets here. What about their parents? I'm going to my office now to call them. I've been held up waiting for you. Her ringed fingers shook at me. Do not leave campus. Come to my office the minute Anita calls for you. Lori Schlusser. Keeper of the keys. Jailer. Bernie gave me a sad, apologetic look as he left with Lori and the dorm parents. Ho patted my arm. I know you locked up, and I told her that a dozen times. I know you locked up because I came back at 9 to check the kiln and the door was locked. I relocked it when I left at 9.15. Then why is she accusing me? I think she's lost it. This is the craziest I've ever seen her. By the end of that awful school day, May had been suspended through the coming weekend, and Charles had been expelled. I received a termination letter. Rumors consumed the campus, casting a pall over everything. My students came to class looking at me in a confused, unhappy way. It was no secret that everyone considered Lori a demon. Tian sent Victor to pick up May, and he also texted me. I heard the news, and it's upsetting and appalling. Let's talk on Sunday. His message was a comfort. He was on my side. And on Charles's as well. By the end of the week, Charles was readmitted to the school on probation. On Sunday, in the solarium, I began Tian's portrait on a large canvas, and we talked the whole time like the closest friends. I called Dale, and it was obviously one person's arbitrary decision. Why would May be suspended and Charles expelled? Why would you be fired when the reason for firing was not true? Because Lori rules. Right, and I told Dale that she shouldn't be in charge if she's that kind of administrator. Dale called me back later and said Lori wouldn't bend in her decision, and he himself was in an awkward position because the Haskells chaired the board and owned the school. Tian got up to come look at my painting and put a sympathetic arm briefly around my shoulders. So I called Lori and bribed her, but my bribe wasn't good enough to get your job back. Her tenacity is really scary. So what did you do? I promised to renovate her precious admin building. Perfect. What did she say? Blunt as always. Fine, Charles can come back, but not Lamonti. We smiled at each other. Then we looked at the figure and face I had started to paint. Our shoulders touched, and neither of us made any move to detach them. In fact, a magnetic force was holding them. Hmm, you're giving me a boyish quality. Kind of like Renuto Farnese by Titian. How did you guess? You both have those slight impressions next to the mouth. They capture your humor. Tian turned to me, his warm, brown eyes meeting mine. I felt a breathless terror that we were about to kiss and moved my head slightly. I couldn't take on another colossal event in my life, not at that moment. Pia, I don't want you to worry. That woman is totally deranged, and she hasn't seen the last of me. I'm a nice guy till a bad person pushes me too far. It won't take me long to deal with her. I have a few ideas. Just don't involve me. I have enough troubles. I'll say.
The way he smiled, I knew he meant our attraction. Time solves everything, or it helps, and leave Miss Schlusser to me. This is the day we're having lunch in the North End, right? Yep, but work first. Okay, and I love it so far. He went back to his side of the room, and I turned serious. Thank you for listening to episode 17 of Redline. Redline is written by G.D. Spillsbury and narrated by Anna Gravel, directed and produced by Fred Greenhalge, with assistant producer Grace Waldron. Redline is dedicated to Jim Cantor and Brooke Lambert. If you've enjoyed this Redline story, please tell your friends about us and give us a review on Apple Podcasts. Leaving reviews allows us to get more listeners, like yourself, so we can keep bringing you good stories. Learn more about Redline at redlinepodcast.com. That's redlinepodcast.com. Dot com.